Well, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty excited that after the service or at the end of the service, we're going to be baptizing three more folks uh, today. That's pretty good news, right? Uh, just excited to see the Lord at work. And uh, one of the aspects of it that I'm so excited about is it's through the, the ministry of much of you and the lives of these folks who will be baptizing. So they are fruit of your ministry, of our ministry, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, so we're looking forward to that at the end of the service. Uh, I don't know about you if you're anything like me, but this skeptical age kind of messes with me sometimes. Uh, I've noticed that we have this tendency not to trust anything and want to change everything. Uh, sometimes I'm just left wondering, I mean, doesn't tradition mean anything to you people? Uh, like when they change Sports Center, that really messed me up. I mean, I like it now a little bit more, but the changes, I just weren't, I wasn't ready for them. Well, it even happens, uh, I think, sometimes when we are thinking about great hymns. Uh, you'll notice that there's been a lot of dialogue about some really famous hymns and a questioning of whether or not the words are worded just right. Now, now let me just say this. I think that's a good thing that we're listening carefully to the songs that we sing and that we're always re-examining them to make sure that they fall in line with Scripture and glorify the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, but sometimes uh, I get, you know, a little bit frustrated, and um, even by people I really love and respect. Um, but there was actually a, a recent article that came out by a pastor who had written a number of songs, good songs, songs that we sing here, and he was asking a question about Come Thou Fount. Now, my first reaction was, don't mess with Come Thou Fount. You don't touch that. That is perfect the way it is, almost straight from the hand of God. And not only that, he began, to, he began to question one of the lines that actually resonates most with me. And so that started bugging me a little bit. He said, I don't know if the line, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, actually speaks of Christians. Now see, that, that's actually a line that, that resonates powerfully with me. And so I, I listened close. And he went on to say that we as Christians once were prone to wonder, but Jesus' death on the cross has cured that. Now what do you think about that? <laughs> I heard a nah out there, and then I think an amen from this way. But I think you know, if you know the human experience, that we don't exactly idle at being satisfied with Christ, do we? Or do you think it's more realistic to say that we have a tendency in our hearts to, to wonder from God and that we need to pay careful attention to both our souls and the souls of those around us because we recognize that we will wander if we're not paying attention? Is that, is that more the Christian experience for you? Well, it is for me. So you can see how this way of viewing the Christian life can dramatically change the way that you understand the life that you live and the way that you live it, right? I mean, if I understand that my heart is fine and that it idles at not wandering, then I'm, I'm kind of okay, you're okay, and we don't really need to be so serious about all this Christian stuff. But, but if our hearts are prone to wander, then that means that we need to be awake and vigilant and aware and care for one another. And I think that's more in line with at least my experience, and it sounds like a couple of your experiences. And we're going to see uh, this morning that that is an experience of the people of God for some time. We're back in the Songs from the Shadow series in Psalm 95, a, a psalm where the psalmist is calling Israel the people of God who were prone to wander towards worshiping the rock of their salvation. And then he goes on 
to warn them not to stray. So it's, it's rejoicing and then it's warning. That's what happens in this text this morning. Now, if you look at Hebrews 4, 7, that's in the New Testament, uh, they actually say that this psalm was the Word of God in David. Okay, the Word of God in David. Um, but we don't know if that means that David wrote this or if this means that this is in the book that David is given credit for, the Psalms, which we know have some that were written by David, some not. But it's, it's likely that this book, though it, this letter, that it might not have been written by David, does sound a whole lot like something that David would say and has said. So if you look at 2 Samuel 22, 2-3, uh, that chapter of 2 Samuel and 22 is actually reveling in God as the rock of his salvation who protected him from Saul and who kept him safe and was a refuge to him. And there in verses 2 to 3, David says this, The Lord, Yahweh, is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, and whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. That, that was a song that erupted from David's heart and hopefully the song that is in your heart the song that you are clinging to and that rock of your salvation, and a song that becomes more glorious as we go on this morning. Now, whoever wrote this psalm fears for God's people that their hearts and ways will wander from the rock of their salvation. Now, as we read, you'll notice that he is moving from this call to worship to a warning against wandering. And the, the, the shift is so quick and so hard that a lot of people have looked at this and said, this must have been two separate psalms that were just sort of melted together that originally didn't have anything to do with each other. But I think what we're going to find as we go along is that these actually fit together beautifully in a way that is calling for our attention this morning. And here's what I think we're going to see. If you're taking notes, a great thing to write down, we're going to see this. That because our hearts are prone to wonder, I think the psalmist is saying, let's set our sight on the rock of our salvation. Because our hearts are so prone to wonder, let's set our sights on the rock of our salvation. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. And we're going to begin first by rejoicing and revering the rock of our salvation in verses 1 to 7. But let's pray and ask God for help as we do that this morning. We pray with me? Father, this morning we come before you and we praise you. We praise you because you are indeed the rock of our salvation. And Father, we recognize that our hearts are prone to wonder. And so is our attention. And so God, this morning we know that we need to hear from you today. And that today you have a word for us. And so God, we pray that you would grip our attentions, Father. That you would draw us to yourself. That we might hear from you. And Lord, that you would do a work in us that is not just the work of people hearing words from a human mouth, but God, they would hear from the very mouth of God. Lord, do this for the glory of your name, we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing we're going to see that this psalmist does is he is calling a people to rejoice and revere in the rock of their salvation in verses 1 to 7. Now, here what you're going to notice is the psalmist is inviting the congregation of God's people to sing to Yahweh as the rock of their salvation. He's inviting them in. And, and then he's inviting them in the first seven verses to come forward and do this. Now, as we read, you're going to notice a, a simple but powerful structure that helps explain what this means. 
Uh, so you'll notice as I read that verse 1 is going to make a command, and he's going to command the congregation to sing, and then in verse 3 he's going to give the ground for why. He tells them something about who God is, for the Lord is great. And then you'll notice uh, in a second, verse 6 commands a congregation to come and worship and then grounds it in verse 7 saying, for he being God is our God. So that's what we're going to see as we read through here. So pay attention as we go through these first five verses where we'll see that we are told to rejoice in this regal rock of refuge and rescue. Yes, it is an R-laden Sunday. So here we go. Rescue, rejoice in the regal rock of our refuge and rescue, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What a a text expressing the the glory of God. Now, the English, I think, as you're reading through this, it, it tells you the right message, but I think that it might be a little difficult to see the kind of volume that the psalmist is actually calling for from the congregation. I mean, as you read it in the Hebrew, he's actually calling Israel to get loud for God. He's not just saying, I want you to sing and sing earnestly. He's saying, I want you to shout for God this morning. It would kind of be like Kevin this morning getting up and saying, guys, it's Sunday. Let's get loud for God this morning and rattle the earth over who he is. He is worthy. Are you ready? There we go. And I believe that he would have wanted the pews to rattle with the voices of God's people heralding the God of salvation. So this is an invitation for the people of God to get loud about God because he is deserving of it. And catch this, they direct their song specifically towards their rock-like God. Now, I don't know if you have done much thinking about rock and how when you use the word rock with people or persons, it can actually be good or bad. So for instance, if somebody has told you that you have a rock for brains, that's bad. And if you don't get that, I can explain it to you later. But if somebody comes to you and they say to you, like, you know, you're a wrestler, and man, we want to call you the rock, that is a very good thing. It means you are strong, right? But what exactly is it that we are saying about God when we call him the rock of our salvation? And, and what is it about him as the rock of our salvation that ought to move us to erupt with a joyful noise that shakes the earth? Well, I like what one commentator I read had to say about this. Edward Ellis writes that in the Old Testament, a rock symbolizes the security and the defense of a steep and inaccessible refuge. It is seen as a picture of safety and security for the people of God. So the rock is speaking of God as their refuge, and God is the best defense who protects us. But salvation brings in another aspect of this, because he's the rock of our salvation. And Savior, salvation brings to mind the idea of a rescuer, right? A rescuer who's gone on the offense to deliver that which is lost, So he's pursued something that has been lost. In other words, the psalmist is saying, hey, catch this, the best offense is the best defense, and God is both. That was way before we ever came up with that. 
See, our Savior here is our rescuer and he is our refuge. That is our rock-like Savior. But verse 3, as you get there, you might have thought to yourself, this seems like the psalmist kind of loses focus, like maybe a a modern contemporary uh, praise song where it's just kind of we're praising God for every one of his attributes in this song. They don't need to fit together because God is one, right? It It might seem a little bit like that. Like he's going on to an unrelated idea that is connected to God, but how does it fit with what comes before it? See, he moves from God as refuge and rescuer to God as this this regal or this sovereign who is sovereign over everything spiritual. He is over every God. And then it might even seem like he goes and shifts again in verses 4 to 5 where he points to God not just as sovereign spiritually, but sovereign spatially over the whole earth. He is sovereign over the whole earth. In other words, from the icy tip of Mount Everest, the very highest point on earth, to the dark, cold depths of the Mariana Trench, the lowest place on earth, and everything in between and beyond, God reigns. That's the vision that he casts for them. But catch this, God is regal without equal, both spiritually and spatially. That's what this text is telling us. But I think it's doing something more. See, I think he's actually sort of peeling back a greater reality. Catch this. In the original context, as Israel would have heard this amongst the nations, these ideas, I believe, would have been even more connected in their minds. See, the nations that were all around Israel believed in a pantheon of gods. And that that mini-god pantheon were gods who had uh, territories. They had territories that either would have been like geographic, like a god over Egypt, or over a certain topic like fertility. And so it was a little bit like the gods were a a big massive dog with a shot collar, right? So that, that god was in control of this realm, and you better fear them as long as you're in this specific territory that they have authority over. But if you get outside of the realm of their authority, they have no power over you. They are powerless in your life. And notice here what God is saying as He speaks about the nature of who He is before these many gods over many nations and many different territories and many different topics. He says, I am God of gods above them all. There is none who has a reign whose authority supersedes mine in any place that you ever go or ever can imagine, my authority, I am King of kings, I am Lord of lords, and there is none like me. So if you're thinking to yourself, as I'm coming before you and asking you to rejoice and to sing loudly before me, I don't want you singing to me as one of the lesser gods, I want you to sing to me as the God of gods. There is none like your God. There is none with the authority or the strength or the the realm of my kingdom that extends from shore to shore like me. God is a unique God here. Now do you see how this would have been an encouragement to Israel, who is being called to sing to the rock of their salvation? A people who would experience exile. A people who would experience being in another land with other gods who were claiming that their gods were over their God. And even pointing to their situations and saying, hey, if your God was really in charge, why would he let you go through this? So here the psalmist is envisioning his God reigning high above that pantheon with unparalleled power. And he is calling God's people to erupt in praise over their great refuge and rescuer who reigns, knows no boundaries spatially or spiritually. Now just let that sink in just for a second. 
There was nowhere where God's people could flee from his presence or his authority and rule. Nowhere. No place. Spiritually, geographically. Inside Israel, outside of Israel. Temple or no temple, in their bedrooms or in a distant alleyway. On the top of a mountain or in the middle of the ocean, in Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Persia, wherever, no gods held dominion over their refuge, the God of their salvation. And here's what that meant practically. They could seek God as a refuge from any GPS location without fear that some other spiritual being might claim territorial rights over their souls. See, God's still a refuge, still a refuge, still a rescuer for his people wherever they are. And the psalmist is right that that's something worth singing about loudly. Amen? That's our God who is for us. Now, here, you will hear me, I, I think, encourage you again and again what we find here in this text and elsewhere in the Bible, and that is that we need to sing loudly. You might say, well, why is he telling us to sing loudly? Well, let me just say this. I'm glad that I get to preach this today because I felt like y'all were singing loudly. Now, I think some pews could still shake, but we were doing good work here this morning, right? But I think that the Bible is replete with examples of the way that we are supposed to sing loudly and that that is important and encouraging for us spiritually and for those around us. Now, you might say, well, why is that? Because we, we might not just naturally understand that, and that might sound like a fun preacher thing to say, but why is it that we ought to sing loudly? I thought a few reasons, just a few. You can come up with more. But just think about this. I think we sing loudly first because God is glorious. He is glorious, and there is nothing more right. Please hear me carefully. There's nothing more right in all of creation than when his people, all of us, rejoice in God being God. And delight in him, not simply for what he can do for them, because he can do much, has done much for us, but that's not really even the ground of why we worship him. We worship him for who he is. There is none like him. I feel like y'all are like way tired this morning, and this text is lit. So, see, we know, I think, just how broken we are and the world is when we gather to worship and we struggle to sing. It reminds us that we have lost a vision of who God is. You know, we, we have unconfessed sins that we bring in in our lives and we begin to try to sing and we find our voices stifled. Or we don't like the style of music and we find that our hearts are really looking at the wrong things rather than God. The music is distracting us rather than helping us. Or we didn't get enough sleep because we weren't really coming prepared to sing like the spiritual lives of those around us mattered or whatever. There are all kinds of reasons that I always bring myself in here, but we are never as human. Never as human as God made us to be. As when we are rejoicing and delighting in God being God with God's people in good times and bad. It's a powerful testimony of the greatness of God. But there's, I think, um, a great quote that, that reminds me of why we have been made. John Piper, he famously uh, said and probably says in every sermon that he ever preaches, that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And I believe that as we sing and we rejoice with our voices about the goodness and the greatness of God, we are testifying that God is indeed who He says He is, and we're reminding ourselves of who He is. But there's a second thing, that, and that's this. We, we sing because we need to be reminded of the greatness of God lest we forget. You know, one of the reasons that we are prone to wonder is because we are prone to forgetfulness. 
and singing. The thing that God tells us in the New Testament and the Old Testament that God's people do when they get together, they sing about God and who He is. They do that as one way to remind us of who God is, lest we forget. I mean, how many of you could say that you remember way more hymns and psalms and spiritual songs than you can remember sermons and titles? I bet many of you could. And I don't think that's an accident that God uses music in our hearts to draw attention to who God is and to remind us of who He is. There is something that is delightful to me about when Malachi sings a song and leads us in singing a song on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon, I hear my son Johnny or Benjamin or Jack singing it to themselves. Don't even know I'm paying attention. Why? Because they are sitting there declaring the glory of God and it's coming out without them even noticing it. What a great tool for the glory of God. I remember um, recently I had an opportunity to spend some time with D.A. Carson. He was talking about his life and ministry. He's about to retire. And he said, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that most people, they forget. They forget most of what I teach. But what they remember, what they remember the things that I get excited about. And so when we come and we sing, we are called to sing and rejoice loudly to God because it is calling into remembrance what we are excited about, which is God Himself. And what a powerful tool in the lives of those around us, our children, our family. Maybe a testimony to a non-Christian friend who says, these people sing like God really is real. And not, not only that, third, third reason that I believe that we are called to sing is the Bible says that music teaches theology. Not only does it remind us of what we ought to know about God, but it teaches us theology. So uh, Paul says in Colossians 3.16, that's in the New Testament, uh, it was read this morning. Uh, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And catch what he goes on to say, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God in your hearts. Now for Christians, I think what Paul is saying is that singing is critical to working at having the Word of Christ dwell richly in you. So if you're thinking, man, I want some of that. I want more Christ and more of me. How do I do that? Part of it, at least here, is to sing together with the people of God about God and His greatness, glorifying Him. That takes the Word of God and Christ Himself and digs Him deep into your soul so that you are full more of more Christ. But not only that, not only do we sing from thankful hearts, I believe that there's a process in which that song also makes us thankful. In other words, we sing because we're thankful, but it also makes us more thankful, invites others into the thankfulness of what God has done. Well, we could say more, but sing. There's another thing we see here, though. Notice that our rejoicing in God will also cause us to revere the rock of our salvation in verses 6 to 7. So he moves from voices lifted to heaven to bodies that are falling prostrate before God in reference. Uh, We see this in verses 6 to 7 where we are to revere the rock of our salvation who redeemed us. Now this is is good. Um, When we see God as He is, uh, I've said it many times, we see ourselves more fully as we are. God in His glory reveals us in the light of His glory as for who we truly are. And that's why I believe verses 6 to 7 turn from this rejoicing to this reverence. Uh, look there again with me in those verses at what, at what they say. Here's what he says. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Now, just think about this. 
when you read it, it, it might sound like God is saying something like, I created all things, so you need to bow down or I will crush you, right? That, at first glance, might sound like that. And, and we do know that in other places, there is this sense in which um, God tells us that on the final day, everybody's going to bow down, right? So Philippians 2 says on that final day when Jesus returns, you're either going to bow down or you're going to bow down. Like you've got a choice. It's one or the other, right? Bow down or bow down. Everybody's going to bow down. But I think this is a little different. Now hang with me. See, the psalmist does call God's people to worship, a word that, that literally means to fall down on your face before someone, or, or, or also to, to bow down and to kneel before our maker. Now, this speaks of a, a subject kind of bowing in submission to a king, pledging allegiance, saying, I am under your rule. Uh, I will follow you. You are my king. But the ground in verse 7 seems to speak not of the first creation, that's kind of generally true of all things, but specifically of the new creation of Israel as a people. See, they, they were not a people when God redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt and made them who were not a people a people. And he said, uh, you were not a people, but now you are a people. And gets, it gets better. You're my people, and I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I am making a covenant with you that I am for you to the point that I am laying my life down for you and for your good for the rest of your days as a people. See, God committed himself to them to be their good shepherd who would lay down his life to protect, guide, and to provide for them. So catch this. Here, here it is. It's God's special loving kindness towards Israel as a redeemer that inspires humility of themselves before their good shepherd king. And they're asking this. They're asking, what wondrous love is this? The, the prostration is before the, the, the majesty of the God who made all things, not loving just everyone generally, but specifically this people of God. Why is it that you would love us in such a way? And that is the thing that, that caused them to fall before him. And don't miss this. We, I believe, live in a culture where man is great and God is small. Or, or he's the guy that you blame for all of the sad things in this world. In fact, I, I, I read a book uh, not long ago, just a decade, but it was a, a book written by Christopher Hitchens, and it was called God is Not Great. It's almost hard even to have it on my bookshelf. But it's a book where he is actually talking about the fact that God is not truly great. He is not truly good. In fact, to believe in God is actually uh, tantamount to abuse because all of the harm that we have in the world is because of God. See, God's not great in his eyes. He's guilty. Now, for the human heart, as we approach the greatness of God, we need to realize that there are two things that, that happen this side of heaven in the, the shadow of the greatness of God. As we are thinking about these ideas and we're exposed to them, we'll find that for the human heart, the greatness of God is where both praise and rebellion are born. The greatness and the goodness of God is where our hearts are melted as we believe God is who he says he is, and they are the hearts that rebel and say, I will not believe that you are who you say you are. See, the rock of our salvation is a place where we find pride and humility growing in the shadow of God's sovereign rule. And the rock of our salvation becomes a chief cornerstone 
for the house of the people of God, but a rock of stumbling for those who refuse to bow before God and submit to his word. That rock that is so good can also be so hard for those who will reject it. And see, that's why I find this abrupt shift in tone in the rest of seven to the end of the psalm to make perfect sense. Because he is turning direction towards people who met the rock of God's salvation and grumbled and turned away from it. And that's what he talks about in the rest of this psalm. He is asking his people to sing about this to remind them of this. So notice third, that he tells in the rest of this psalm, his hearers, don't harden your hearts against the rock of our salvation. Don't harden your hearts against the rock of your salvation. I mean, I love the image here. It's, it's almost like, what do you do when uh, an irresistible force meets an immovable object, right? The, the irresistible force of God's sovereign rule against the immovable object, which is our stony hearts. What, what's going to change? Oh, here we find it. We find that God tells us that we need to be careful. Here the psalmist breaks out and says, today, if you hear his voice, which is God's voice, and he, he then speaks his voice in verses 7 to 11. And we'll notice that we're told that God's sheep always hear his voice, and he points them back to Exodus and Numbers. So what does God do? God's quoting the Bible. And he quotes the Bible as he's actually speaking the Bible, and he warns them of their hearts and the ways that they are prone to wander. And he uses that with an image of those who fail to enter God's rest as a consequence of not listening to God and wandering away from God, they were not able to enter the promised land. You see that in verse 11. That's the rest they're speaking of, the promised land. See, they failed to obey God and take the land because they doubted God and they died in the desert. Well, here's what we find in verses 7b to 11. Listen to what he says. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as the one at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now we see Massah and Meribah in a couple of places in the Old Testament. You see it in Exodus 17, and then you later see it in Numbers chapter 20. Now here's what happened. In Exodus 17, uh, you find that Israel had just been delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery, into the wilderness where God had promised to take them to the promised land. And as they were in the middle of the desert, they began to grumble. I mean, it didn't take like three days and they began to grumble against God. They grumbled against him for food. In these texts, they grumbled, they grumbled against him because they did not have water. They were thirsty. And they started asking God if he had just led them into the desert to kill them and their children. Now that anger grew to the point that they actually were going to stone Moses, right? So Moses goes before God and God says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to take that staff. You remember the one that a few days ago, like you parted the Red Sea with? and that they've forgotten about, yeah, take that stick and I want you to go to the rock and I want you to tap it twice and water is going to flow out of it. And so he did this, water flowed out of it, and that's where God decided to name, change the name of this place. And he changed it from Rephidim to Massah, meaning testing, and Meribah, meaning dispute. 
In other words, he wanted them to remember this place where they quarreled with each other and with God and where they were testing God through not trusting him. Well, it happens again in Numbers 20. Now, if you just don't think that humanity learns its lesson very well, right? And if you have kids and you're like, you just did that. And we've talked about this. There was discipline. You learned. It was a glorious moment. I should have got a parenting award. And then, like, you left the room and I heard a scream before I was even able to get up from my chair. And so we're right back here. And you're thinking, oh, this must be just a kid thing. No, it's a, a human thing, right? We, we tend not to learn well, and neither did Israel. And so Israel's out in the desert, still there in the wilderness, and they're thirsty again. And so what do they do? They grumble, right? And they're starting to think about killing Aaron and Moses again. And we find Aaron and Moses who fall on their face before God. They fall on their face before him. And God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that same staff and I want you to walk out. And instead of tapping it with the staff or hitting it, I want you to just speak to it and water is going to come forth. But Moses went and uh, he had the staff and he had the people and he went to the rock and he was going to, to speak to it. And then he, he, we find out that he strikes it like he did last time. And it seems like because he was angry at the rebellion of the people of God. And in Numbers 20, 12 to 13, we find that, that God speaks to him about this and it says this, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me. Remember, he, he, he didn't speak to the rock, he hit the rock. He was supposed to just speak to it. And he says, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into land that I have given them, that land of rest. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself to be holy. Now don't miss this. The psalmist turns this joyful song into a modern warning for Israel not to test God. Now to test means to show the genuineness of, and they saw that, that God, the God who had done mighty wonders in the past, but were never satisfied to trust God as their rock-like God, the, the good shepherd of their souls. He, he spoke to those people who did not believe in him. And the result of disobeying God in their hearts and the way of life that resulted from that led to them dying in the desert and not entering the promised land of God's rest. See, the, the rumbling of grumbling against one another and the leaders Moses and Aaron erupted from hearts that ultimately did not trust God. So Moses and Aaron, that might have been an occasion of their sin, uh, but they were not the cause of it. The cause of their sin was they did not trust God. And here what we find is, is that grumbling hearts don't rejoice in God. Israel saw God swallow up the Egyptian army in the Red Sea and then lost sight of confidence in the rock of their salvation, their good shepherd. I mean, how does that happen? God created them to rejoice in him, but they grumbled against him. There's something broken about us that needs God's help. Now, it's easy to grumble, isn't it? Anybody here find it easy to grumble? A little hard to rejoice like we're supposed to. Do pretty good at grumbling when I know I need to bring it up, right? Well, even today, I believe that we grumble about all kinds of things. We grumble about our kids, right? Our spouses, our lack of spouses, our salaries, our jobs being too busy, our jobs not existing, uh, we, we, we worry about our cars being broken down or too expensive, our health, our, our churches, our pastors, our food, our teachers, 
And this text, I believe, is for us today. Recovering grumblers. That you take the grumbling of your heart and lips as serious as God does. You know, this is one of the, the, the biggest struggles I have. I don't know what, what your struggles are. I think I, some are easier for others to see, but it's the grumbling heart that I, I find myself needing to constantly lasso in and make sure that it doesn't actually consume me. So do you take the grumblings of your heart and lips as serious as God does? See, our hearts wander from God and we grumble all the way. In fact, our grumbling tells us something about our movement away from God. So what hope do we have? Well, here's the hope that we find in the New Testament. We have one greater than Moses, who failed to obey God and lead his people into rest. We have the rock of our salvation, Jesus Christ. See, sometimes a rock is just a rock in the Bible, but sometimes that rock is Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4, uh, we find Paul pick up on this story, and he says this. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, and we be brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in that cloud and in the sea. And verse 3 says, and all ate of the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. In other words, Paul's looking back at this story, and he sees a rock that was struck for their salvation, that gave them water that was living, that gave them life in a place that was dead and barren. And he says, that is a picture of who Christ is. That was setting us up, preparing the way for Jesus Christ, the greater rock that would come after. And Jesus, hear me, he is our great rock of salvation. He was struck. He was struck at the cross that we might drink from the fountain of living waters. Isn't that good news? He is the only refuge and rescuer of our souls. Moses, he struck the rock in anger of the grumbling of God's people in their wayward wayward hearts. And that life-giving water flowed out. But we struck Jesus and his blood flowed out that we might live. See, Jesus came and was struck for you and me that we might drink of the waters of eternal life. And he came to save us by living a perfect life that we could not. He died in a place to absorb God's just wrath for us so that we might be not just no longer rebels of God, but children of God. And was raised from the dead to declare that the spring of life and its life-giving waters is open to all who will turn from living for sin to living for King Jesus. He is the rock of our salvation. And that's the best news ever this morning. Now catch this. As we close, I have some thoughts for you. And the way that I think that we as Christians ought to be thinking through this and some encouragements to to help you. See, as you look at Hebrews 3 and 4 that deal with this very psalm, and as you look at uh, Psalm uh, 95, and as you look at 1 Corinthians 10, all of these texts are actually warning us against hearts that are prone to wonder. They say we, we struggle to wonder and we need to be careful about our hearts. So the encouragement I have is that that those are truly Christ will not be lost. John 10 says that no one will pluck my sheep out of my hand. And if you're worried about that, God the Father has them in his hand as well. And so you are secure if you were a child of God. But we also know that Philippians 2 tells us that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we need to be careful to take watch over our souls and the souls of others. And so I just want to give you some, some practical warnings. This is really pastoral advice about ways I've seen sheep wander, ways I've, I've seen people sort of enticed 
to fall away from God and His people. So these are kind of types of sheep that I just want to bring out to encourage you to think about, is this what's going on in my heart? Is my heart wandering in a way that I don't know? Uh, first one is the grass is greener sheep. The grass is greener sheep. This is when the sheep has ideals that become the enemy of the real life experiences. Have you ever experienced that yourself like I do? Like you maybe read about the church in the Bible and then you look at the church in the pew and you're like, man, I just, I feel like this is different. Uh, you might need to read 1 Corinthians and you'll be encouraged. But you, you look at yourself and you go like, man, I just feel like life should be better. I feel like God's promises should all be realized now. And I just, I'm having trouble with what's real and before me. See, they always seek out something that maybe is uh, biblical or maybe not biblical and they see that standard is not being met and it depresses their soul and they grumble and they think they're grumbling against this thing but they're grumbling against God. Their expectations are never met in real time and so they begin to question God. They can't find a church or pastors that meet their standards. Or, or it's kind of like the day that I found myself counseling two men. It was really interesting to me because uh, the first counseling session was about a single man that thought that being married would solve all of his problems. And then my next meeting, the very next meeting, I met with a guy who said he was a married man who felt like being single would solve all of his problems. And I thought, this has got to be like a parable or something here. But no, that's just how our hearts work. We, we, we think that the grass is greener somewhere else and we need to be careful with our souls. Because if we think that things are better and that if we can just disobey God and things will be better for us, the grass will be greener in being disobedient to God, then we will find that the consequences of sin are worse than we know. It's never good for us and God always wants what's best for us. God always gives us what we need. Second, the, the sheep who play around the fence. Have you ever met these sheep? Maybe you are these sheep. See, this is where you know what is right and wrong. Like you really do know, it's clear, this is wrong, this is right. And as you're looking at it, you, you find that you're not engaged in sin with your actions yet, maybe in your heart, but, but you, you know that you're sitting there really close and you're kind of lingering. You know what I'm talking about? You're lingering next to the fence. And as you're lingering next to it, you're, you're sort of looking at the sin, contemplating it. In fact, you almost begin to sort of idealize it and it begins to look beautiful and glorious. And you begin to think to yourself, man, if I just had that, I would have joy. You know, maybe you're a married guy who begins to, like, just check up on an old girlfriend through Facebook. And you're like, I'm not, I'm not going to sin. I just, I'm just kind of curious what's going on. Maybe there's a, a sense in which you find that you gradually, in any of those moments, begin to think less and less about God's holiness and the consequence of sin and more and more the potential joy that's offered you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus came that you might have fullness of joy. He's the only place to find the fullness of joy. Seek him in his word. Seek him with his people. Uh, maybe you're a sheep that's straying from the flock. You know, I've often said that usually the movement away from God begins in the heart, but the next step, once it's been done in the heart, is away from God's people. Uh, you see people stray from a local church. You see people stray from the community of people who are holding them accountable before God. And it's only thereafter that you see them abandon Christ himself. I think that might be why Jesus had to leave the 99 and go and get the one. Have you ever thought about this? It's because Jesus is with the 99. And when they left the 99, they were actually leaving Jesus too. I think we need to be just careful about the fact that when we are straying away from the people of God, it might be also Christ as well that we're moving away from. Fourth, immature sheep. Now, this is not an age issue. Um, you can be an old, you can be old, you can be young, 
you can be immature as a young, as a, a young Christian. Uh, if that's, you've only been a Christian for a short time, you're an immature Christian. But I've seen young people in their 30s that have shown great maturity. I've seen old people in their 60s and 70s that have shown little maturity. But this is an immature sheep. They don't know God's Word, and they don't have experience applying it. And so they may know a lot of the Word, but they haven't experienced actual obedience. Now let me just be really clear here. Um, one thing I noticed about my heart was I like got this really unique thing, a seminary education, right, with a diploma that said I was a master of divinity. I have a piece of paper on my wall. No kidding. Master of divinity. Sounds a little bit proud to me, but a seminary gave it to me, so it must be humble. <laughs> and do you know what the next 10 years were? It was me realizing that I was no master at all. That I was a broken man who needed Jesus to help other broken people. There, the, the mature Christian is the one who understands their absolute desperate need for Christ every day. And their absolute need to be transformed into him, His image. And if they're not the example, Christ is the example. They're not the hero. Christ is the hero. You have self-impressed sheep who like how their wool looks, right? They look at it. They comb it. They're like, man, I'm a good-looking sheep. Now, here's the fascinating thing. The self-impressed sheep, uh, I believe these sheep can either be liberals or they can be legalists. You can have both of them. People who say we're really spiritual, we're not really spiritual, and yet at the heart they're really the kind of same thing, and they get really mad if you say that. But here's what I mean by that. See, liberals have this secret to spirituality. And that's that you need to be more accepting, even have absolute acceptance. See, that's the secret to, to really being godly. And then you have legalists who say, no, the, the secret to be godly is you've got to keep the rules. And some of these are kind of in the Bible, some not. But you just got to keep our rules because we found the secret to pleasing God. And if you obey either program, the promise is, is that you have received true spirituality and the only way people that we really reject are people who don't agree with our absolute theology or philosophy of life. See, this is a sheep that is self-righteous, but is not trusted in the very righteousness of Christ. They think that they can create some kind of standard of righteousness that will save them before God and others, other than Christ and what he has won for us at the cross. We have lazy sheep, sometimes fit into this category. They don't pursue their spiritual disciplines of reading God's word, praying, meeting with God's people. And they think they're safe, but there's no fruit and they're in danger. Or you have busy sheep. I sometimes fit into this category. They serve a lot, which is really good, but they work a lot and they worship little or not at all sometimes. Do you know that? They, they get really busy about the things of God, but they're not so busy about the worship of God, about making much of Him, rejoicing in Him. Their hearts are not warm towards God, but boy, they work hard for God. And we need to see that our works are actually being fueled by a warmth of devotion to the living God. And what about wounded sheep, those who are sick or lonely or face tragedy? Those who struggle to trust in the goodness of Christ and others. Those who have been abused and hurt and it's caused them to have thoughts about the shepherd that he might not be truly good. They forget that Christ was struck that they might be healed and they lose sight of the future promises of, are coming. If that's you, let me encourage you this morning as a wounded sheep. God came and was struck that you might be healed. And if you will turn to him, you might not believe it, but God really can and is making you new in Christ. And then, of course, lastly, there's a, a beautiful truth about the, the water that flows from the rock of salvation that was struck for us. It has a, 
this amazing ability to change a sheep into a sheep from a sheep that was formerly a goat. Did you know that? It's true. The Bible says in the end that Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And there was a sense in which we were all goats who were rebelling against God. But when we drank from the water that did flow from his wounds, we actually were transformed into a sheep. Someone that, that, that Christ all of a sudden says, my care is for you and I am for you to the end to the point that I will lay my, my life down for you. And I did do it. I did it at the cross. And your future is incredibly bright. You know, it, maybe today you're one of those goats. And the end is not hopeful for you because you haven't drunk from the rock yet. And you don't know Christ yet. And your identity and your reality has not been shaped like it's shaped whenever you drink from Christ. But if that's you today and you're a goat and you know that you're a rebel, that you have no hope on that last day, when you come before Christ and you need hope, the hope is here. The hope is in Jesus. And if you put your faith in Him, you can be one of His sheep. One of those who he says, I am your regal refuge and rescuer. I am for you. There's nowhere you can go from my help and from my comfort and from my care and from my protection. Not even death can separate you from the love that you have in me. If that's you, I'd like you to just talk to me today before you leave. I'd love to tell you about how you can become one of these sheep of God. In fact, uh, right now we're about to baptize three folks who have been transformed from goats into sheep. Uh, those who love Christ, who are Christ followers, and I am thrilled to be able to hear their testimony. So let's pray, and then we'll get to hear how God has been at work in these lives. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that you are the good shepherd, the rock of our salvation. We praise you that you have come to seek and to save the lost. Father, you have come after us. And Father, I know that there might be those here today who have not put their faith in you who have not experienced the good care of the good shepherd, whose hearts are wandering and they need to be drawn back to you and towards the excellence of Christ. Lord, let your spirit do that work. And Father, for many of us who do love your son Christ, who are your sheep, who are wandering, Father, we invite you today to, to draw us back to yourself. Use this body. Use your word. Father, use the singing of your congregation to excite us anew about you, our great God, reminding us that you are indeed the rock of our salvation. And it's in your great name that we do pray. Amen.